Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realised they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from that tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly, and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. To the woman he said, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. With pain you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. To Adam he said, Because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. forever. So the Lord God banished him from the garden of Eden to work from the ground which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. Thanks, Jess, for reading that. Now, on the way in, you would have received an outline. If you don't, you can get one. That will help you. It might help you. It will help me uh, work through this sermon. So uh, you can get one of those. Now, just a reminder, tonight we actually have um, in the hall, after the service, a meal together. So please hang around for that. And we want to be thanking the Watsons, who have kindly cooked, and also um, Lindell. Yep, so please thank them afterwards. And please hang around for a meal together afterwards.
Now, this is a passage、um, that would be so familiar with all, all of us.、Um, but let's pray to God that as we come to this passage once again, that He will give us fresh eyes to see what He might be teaching us today. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you for your Word, which is living and active. And we pray, Lord, that you might open up our eyes, give us fresh eyes to see what you are teaching us this evening. We pray, Lord, that your Word will not only fill our minds, but will change our hearts and change our ways. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now, have you ever wondered how far? Humanity has come. How far humanity has come! Just think of the amazing achievements of mankind. Have you ever thought about that? I've spent some time thinking about that this past week, and it's just mind-boggling. I mean, here in my pocket, I've got this little black thing. This is called an iPhone, made by some fruit company. It's called an iPhone. With this small thing, and with my just my fingertips, fingertips, I have all my diary. I have hundreds of contact details. I have hundreds of songs in this little black thing. I have hundreds of photos, and this thing—it's also my camera. It's also my video camera. In this thing, I have the map of the whole world. In this thing. I have my Bible. I carry the Bible with me everywhere. I have almost every translation. I've got my Greek Bible. I've got my Hebrew Bible. I've got commentaries in this little black thing. Is that amazing or what? Remarkable. In this thing, I can access my bank account. I can send money. In this thing, I have this this strange thing called Facebook. Now, I hope you're not looking at Facebook at the moment, but that's in this thing too. And with this thing. I can also make phone calls. How how amazing is that? <laughs> I can also make phone calls with this thing. I can call someone on the other side of the world with no cables, with no wires. Isn't that remarkable? Just consider how far humanity has come. How far have we come? Now that is not an ad for this fruit company. They do quite okay without me. But just consider how far we've come. I mean, this thing would be unimaginable ten years ago. Just ten years ago, we would have never imagined that this would be a possibility. So, does it amaze you when we think of the great achievements of humanity, the greatness of mankind? It just boggles my mind to think of these things. And just so you know, many of these things were done by engineers. You have to love the engineers. So, just think about these things. I mean, the the cars we drive. Now, that's not my car. <laughs> I'm not in the exact、um, profession to get a car like that. I might be able to get a Toyota, but not, nothing like that. Cars. We have these cars that take us hundreds of kilometers. We don't get tired. We don't need horses anymore. What about this? This thing is、uh, Queen Mary number two. Weighs 150,000 tons. 150,000 tons of metal, but it floats. Isn't that amazing? Engineers, they're great. What about this thing? It is about 650 tons, a jumbo jet. I can take this plane and go to almost anywhere in the world. This thing that weighs 650 tons can defy the laws of gravity. 
Is that amazing or what? Great achievements of mankind. And not only that, we've also put a man on a moon. Human greatness, that's a symbol of human greatness. And then when we consider architecture, I mean, there's this building in Dubai, 800 metres high. That's ridiculous. Human achievement. What about this? Human, uh, human marvel, uh, marvel at this. Know what that is? The Guggenheim Museum, yeah? Yeah, it looks good to some people, but that's <laughs> human achievement. The Louvre, Sydney Opera House, and Federation Square. <laughs> An eyesore to some, but beauty to many others. And not to mention the advancement in medicine. Now, I'm sure engineers must have something to do with this too. They must have designed a syringe. I mean, medicine, advancement in medicine, the, the, this liquid in this syringe can save me from deadly diseases. I mean, this is, these are all symbols of human greatness, what we've achieved. And then we consider the arts. Now, this is me pretending to appreciate the arts, but anyway. Shakespeare, his works. The symphonies of Beethoven. The paintings of Leonardo. That's not his painting, that's him, apparently, and the other one's his painting. Sculptures of Michelangelo. I mean, human greatness, human achievements. It's without doubt that we've come a far way. We've come a long way. Mind-boggling, isn't it, what humanity has achieved. But what really baffles my mind is that at the same time, at the same time of achieving all those amazing things, all those greatness, at the same time, mankind can be so destructive. Mankind can be so wicked, so evil. I mean, just consider the last hundred years, that the wars that, that humankind were involved in, the First World War, the Second World War, the Russian Civil War, the Korean War, the Vietnam War, there were many others. But just from those wars, over 100 million people were killed. It doesn't make sense, does it? Human greatness, but yet such great evil. Or let's think about the, the reign, the regimes of Stalin, of Mao, of Pol Pot. Over 61 million people were killed. just doesn't make sense. We're so great, but yet so destructive, even of our own kind. And then we switch on the news. And then we hear of the gambling the alcohol, the drugs that are so destructive to individuals and to families. We hear of shootings, of murders, of massacres. There was one this year. And then we hear of women being raped. We hear of pedophiles. There was one case just this week in Melbourne. just doesn't make sense. Such human greatness, but at the same time, so destructive, so evil, and so wicked. And we hear all those things, and it just becomes too much. How is it possible? How is that possible? So what happened with this world? I mean, we've achieved so much greatness. What happened? What went wrong? We see all this evilness and wickedness can be traced back all the way to the Garden of Eden, to Genesis chapter 3, which is our passage for today. 
Now let's recall what has happened so far in the first two chapters of Genesis. God has brought the world into existence and it was very good. Now God in his creation has established some order of authority. It's embedded in the DNA of creation. And that is God is the supreme ruler. He is the king, he is the lord of all. But God has placed mankind, man and woman, as rulers under him, made in his image to rule the world, to take care of the world, to rule over the animal kingdom. But within, the, the, within humanity, between man and woman, there is some order of authority there too. You see, the man is responsible for the woman. He named the woman just as he named the animals. And so the woman is to be this helper, this complement to the man in ruling this world. She is to, in a sense, be subordinate to him in relationship, but yet they're both equal before God because they're both made in the image of God. And so there is this order of authority in creation. And we need to understand that to understand this passage tonight. And so what happened in the garden? Well, if you have your Bibles opened, we'll have a look at chapter 3, verse 1. We're introduced to the serpent. Now, the serpent, in chapter 3, verse 1, he's described as more crafty than any of the wild animals that, that the Lord God had made. And then this serpent, this crafty serpent, does something quite surprising. I'm not sure if you've seen this or witnessed this before, but this serpent speaks, speaks to the woman. And he says in verse 1, Did God really say, you must not eat from any tree in the garden? You see, now this serpent is described as being cunning and crafty. And you notice what he's doing there, even in that first verse. He's, in a sense, already created some distance between him and God. In Genesis chapter 2 and 3, God is always identified as the Lord God. The Lord God. But notice what the serpent calls God. Notice what the serpent identifies God as. Just God. So the serpent's thinking, he is God, yes, he is the creator, but he is not my Lord, you see. And so he's already undermining the lordship of God. And we see in this same verse that he is calling into question God's generous provision. God has provided all the trees as fruit for Adam and Eve, except the one tree. But the servant here is calling that generosity into question. He's turning it around. He's asking, did God really provide you with any tree at all? You see, he's turning that generous provision of God around. And so here in this first verse, we're starting to see the serpent's sinister intentions. And so what did the woman do? What did the woman do? Well, what she did should be surprising to us. I'm sure if a normal lady sees a snake talking, you'll run away. you get scared. But she didn't do that. Instead, she answered the serpent. Have a look at verses 2 and 3 now. She answered the serpent. We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden. And you must not touch it or you will die. Now do you notice there where she got it wrong? Firstly, she adopted the, the way the serpent identified God. She didn't call God the Lord God, you see. She used the same 
uh, address God the same way as the serpent, as just God alone. And you also notice here a sense of a slight bitterness towards God. Now, though God has provided her and Adam abundantly, every tree is there for you for food except one. She's here thinking, God's a bit harsh. He's not even letting us touch this tree. Otherwise, we'll die. You can sense a, a, a slight sense of bitterness towards God. But of course, that was never God's command. She was free to touch the fruit. She was not free to eat it. And now the serpent, seeing this opportunity, uh, further entices the woman. He's already thrown the bait and the hook, and now it's time to reel it in. And so look at what he says in verses 4 and 5. So the serpent says, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, what's surprising about what he says? Well, the surprising thing is that it's not entirely false. It's partly true. You see, once um, the woman ate the fruit, she didn't immediately die. She kept on living. So in a sense, what the serpent said, what said here was partly true. And not only that, her eyes was indeed open after she ate the fruit. And so we can see that the serpent there was crafty. He's not telling her the full truth. They were just half-truths. But now what happened? Well, the temptation was too big. She was enticed. And so what did she do? Well, in quite quick succession, she saw the fruit, she took it, and she ate it. And then she passed it to the man to eat it too. He was probably standing right there with her all that time, and he ate it too. And so in that event, in that one event, sin reigned in the world. Sin came into the world. But what's the nature of this sin? What was the nature of this mistake? Well, rather than trust God, obey God, listen to God, the man and the woman instead listened to a snake, listened to a serpent. They listened to something in, um, that sh- they should be ruling. They should have had dominion over the serpent. But yet they turned things around and listened to the serpent instead. And what they did was, though they were made in the likeness of God, they wanted to be like God. You see, they were enticed by the serpent. They wanted to be like God. Being made in the likeness of God was not enough for them. And what they also did was, they wanted to know good and evil. It should have been enough for them to trust God as the one who determined what was good and evil. They should have obeyed. But now they wanted to be the ones who determined what was good and evil. And so the nature of their mistake, the nature of their sin was really just disobedience. They disobeyed God. They put themselves up as almost rivals of God. I don't need you know, what you say. I'd rather decide for myself. And so what was the consequence? What happened? Well, the eyes were in fact opened. So in a sense, what the serpent said did come true. Their eyes were opened, but not in the sense that they thought. They weren't much wiser. Instead, what did they see? They just saw nakedness, and they were ashamed. You know, nakedness, which was a beautiful display of, of um, harmony and intimacy in Genesis chapter 2. 
but now has been turned into something of shame. And so they made fig leaves to cover themselves, and when God came to be with them, they went and hide, uh, hid from God. And so what are we seeing here? Well, here we're seeing the beginning of a broken relationship with God. This is the beginning of the broken relationship that mankind now has with God. What used to be a beautiful picture of harmony has now been damaged. It's now one of shame, one of sin. And so what did God do about it? Well, God asked them what happened. God came and God asked them. And notice the order in which God asked them. You see, God has established that order of authority. And God asked them in that order, the man and then the woman and then the serpent. And so firstly, God turned to the man. And what did God say in verse 11? Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? Now, how should the man have responded? God asked him, have you eaten from the tree which he shouldn't have? How should he have responded? Well, the man, Adam, he should have begged for mercy. He should have dropped on his knee and asked for forgiveness. He should have admitted his fault. He was clearly in the wrong. And he should have taken responsibility for the woman. He should have been the man to seek forgiveness, to seek mercy. But how did he respond? Look at verse 12 now. The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. He's saying, look, it was the woman. And God, it was in a sense your fault. You're the one who placed her here. I mean, if she, if she wasn't around, then I wouldn't have been tempted in this way. So he's blaming the woman and, she's, and he's also blaming God. And so he's thinking, surely I'm not to blame. Surely I'm not to blame. Whereas he should have admitted his fault and asked for mercy. And so what did he do? Well, he's passed the blame onto the woman and even onto God himself. And so God's questioned the man and that was his answer. Now God turns to the woman. In verse 13, what is this you have done? And how should she have responded? Well, she too should have asked for mercy, asked for forgiveness. But instead, she, like Adam, passes the blame. And now the blame onto the serpent. The serpent deceived me, and I ate. Now finally, God turns to the serpent. God didn't question the serpent. God immediately gave his judgment. Have a look at verse 14 and 15. Because you have done this, Cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. And he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. That was God's judgment on the serpent. What did God mean by that? Well, the serpent who was more crafted than then all the other animals, well, now he's the most cursed of them all. And as a reminder of this curse and a reminder of this humiliation, the serpent will grovel the dust forever. 
and his life will be marked as an ongoing battle with mankind. So that was the judgment on the serpent. Now God moves back to the woman to judge her. Now it's interesting if you look at this, the word curse was only reserved for the serpent, though the woman and the man were also judged. Uh, the word curse is not used on them. Perhaps that's a little hint of God's mercy. But how did God judge the woman? Well, look at verse, verse 16. I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. With pain you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Now, in this judgment of the woman, there are two, two separate judgments. Firstly, childbirth will be extremely painful. Now, the mothers amongst us who have experienced childbirth can verify that. And I can verify that too, though I haven't given birth and I don't plan to, but I was at the birth of my three children. And I noticed how Yvonne's face, when the baby was being squeezed out, I noticed Yvonne's face being contorted in ways I've never seen before. And so, no doubt, she was in extreme pain. And so that was one of the judgment on the woman. Childbirth will be excruciating, will be painful. And the second part of this, have a look at that, verse 16. The desire of the woman will be for her husband, and he will rule over her. Now, what did, what did God mean by that? We well, see the word desire here is the word that means the desire to dominate, the, the desire to uh, the desire of the man's authority. And so God's judgment here on the woman was that she will no longer willingly, willingly submit to the leadership of her husband. But her desire is to dominate him. Her desire is to seek his position of authority. But in the end, what will happen? Well, the man will rule the woman. The man will now uh, abuse his authority and he will rule over her. No longer in the loving way that it was meant to be. No longer in the tender way that it was meant to be. But now in the exploitive way. In the subjugating way. And all you really have to do is just look at world history. Read a bit of history and you'll notice how, how poorly women have been treated. You just have to turn on the news to see how poorly women have been abused by the physically stronger partner. I mean, the prime example of this is domestic violence. Women always ends up, almost always ends up being second best. And so this brokenness in the most intimate of relationships was part of God's judgment on the woman. But now we must ask, why did God do that? Why did he judge the woman in that way? Why the pain in childbirth and why this disruption in the intimate relationship of marriage? Why was that so? We see God's judgment of the woman strikes her at the core of her, of her being. You see, it's to hit her at the core of who she is. Because what was the role of the woman in creation? She was to be the man's helper. And she was to be the mother of children. That was the way they were to be fruitful, increase in number, and subdue the earth. But you see, her core function was now affected by sin. Giving birth, which was meant to be 
joyful and a happy time is now accompanied by excruciating pain. It was part of her job in being a, a woman to give birth, to subdue the earth in that way. But now that will be accompanied by pain. And not only that, the marriage relationship, which was meant to be a beautiful picture of intimacy, a beautiful picture of one flesh, will now be marred by this wrong desire of both the woman and the man, this abusive rule of the man and her wrong desire to seek this authority. So that was the judgment on the woman. Now what about the man? God finally turns to the man, and it's almost funny, it seems. It's almost funny what the man was judged for. Do you notice that? Verse 17, have a look. The man was judged for, for this, because you listened to your wife. Adam's fault was that he listened to his wife. Now, is this saying that husbands shouldn't listen to their wives? You know, that that was the sin that brought sin into the world? You know, though many men would like to think this is the case. Many men, I'm sure, you know, Yvonne, I can't listen to you. God's going to judge me if I listen to you. But, But that's not the point, you see. The fault of Adam was indeed listening to his wife. That was his fault. But why was it wrong? Why was it wrong? Well, it was wrong because he was listening to his wife instead of listening to God. He was listening to someone who he should have had responsibility and leadership over rather than the one he should be submitting to, to God himself. And so it was wrong because it was disobedience. And in doing so, you see what Adam was doing? He was turning upside down God's order of authority in the world. Remember, he was meant to be the ruler of the world, the one who exercised dominion over the world and also be responsible for his wife. But what has changed now? He's actually put himself right down the bottom of the pack. He listened to his wife who listened to the serpent. He's turned things upside down. He's distorted God's order of authority in this world. Below the woman and below the animals. And so what was God's judgment? Well, just as the woman was judged at the core of her being, the man too was judged at the core of his being. And his judgment, it's given more attention here because he held the greatest responsibility. And so we see in these three verses, verses 17 to 19, Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. So the man's role in creation was to exercise dominion, to care for the world, to work the garden. But you see, the judgment now was that that work will no longer be easy. It will be hard work. It will be toilsome. The land was cursed because of him. And not only that, at the end of this lifelong struggle, he will return to the dust. He will die. And so just as we read in that first Bible reading in Romans, 
Adam brought death into this world. So what happened then? Well, in these final verses, God's judgment of Adam and Eve was sealed by their banishment from the Garden of Eden. No longer were they able to enjoy the bountiful abundance of God's provision. No longer were they able to eat from the tree of life. No longer were they in God's presence. And not only that, no longer were they in a right relationship with God. That relationship has been broken. And so mankind's relationship with the world, with each other, and also with God, all those relationships are now damaged, broken and damaged by sin. And that's our passage. Quite straightforward, don't you think? That's our passage. But I wonder if we're thinking of this question. I wonder if any of you are left thinking, what hope is there then? What hope is there for humanity? Are we all doomed? Is this it? Well, you see, in a sense, it is it. It is it. You see, what this passage teaches us is that the fundamental problem of all humanity, every single living being, is this problem of sin. It's like this disease that we all have and we all carry. This disease that means a natural rebellion against God. A disease that means that we naturally would disobey God. And it's a disease that really led to the destruction I spoke of in the beginning. The evilness, the wickedness of mankind. The disease of that symptom is sin. So the wars, the fighting, the raping, the murders, the source of that problem is the problem we see here. It's the problem of sin. And all that can be traced back to the garden. But it's now become all-pervasive. It's in every corner of the world. No one is immune. And it's in every inch of our being. But worse than all that destruction we see in the world, worse than all that wickedness and evil we see in that world, worse than all those things, is a broken relationship. It's a broken relationship with God, our Maker, our creator, and the one who gives us life. That is worse than all that we see in the world. And that is our huge problem, the problem of sin. But that's not it. I'm not sure if you've noticed that in our passage, embedded within God's judgment, God actually made a promise. It's a small hint. There's a small hint there. A promise to mankind. Do you notice that? Have a look at verse 15. God makes a promise that an offspring of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. That promise within the punishment. Have a look at verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. You see, there will be an offspring. The word offspring is the word seed. The seed, the offspring of Eve, will one day defeat the serpent. There will be someone who will come along from her line, who will defeat the serpent, who will crush the power of evil, 
and who will defeat death itself. Who is that serpent crusher? Who is that seed? Who is that offspring that is promised here? Well, you see, when you trace the offspring word throughout the Old Testament, it gets narrowed down. At the moment, we know that it's an offspring of Eve from Genesis 3. Later on in Genesis, you find out that this offspring will be an offspring of Abraham. And then later in the Old Testament, you'll find out that this offspring will be an offspring of King David. And then when you get to the New Testament, the first verse, Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, we read the words, The son of Abraham, the son of David, the offspring of Abraham, the offspring of David. And who is that? Well, that's the Lord Jesus Christ. It's Jesus Christ. He is the seed that is promised right here in this passage. He is the one who will crush the serpent's head. Isn't that amazing? Right at the beginning, within the judgment of God, embedded within that is this hint of this promise that one day will come the serpent crusher. And that is Jesus. And how did Jesus crush the serpent's head? Well, it's talking about his crucifixion. It's talking about his death on the cross. Now, that's quite ironic, isn't it? It's actually quite an amazing irony. You see, an irony that shows the amazing mind of God. An irony that shows the amazing wisdom of God. That in God's purposes and plan, that in the one same event, in the one same event, the serpent will strike the heel of this offspring. That is the crucifixion. That is the death of Jesus. And in this one same event, the offspring, Jesus, will crush the serpent's head. And only in the mind of God then can anything like that come about. But also in that one and same event, we see one of the greatest display of human wickedness. In the crucifixion of Jesus, we see one of the greatest display of human evilness. That mankind will crucify and execute an innocent man. Great display of human wickedness. But yet also in that same event, in that one event, we also see the greatest achievement of humanity. The greatest achievement of, in fact, the one man. Far greater than all those technological advances that I spoke of at the beginning, far greater than all the engineering advances and marvels, the greatest achievement of the one man is the salvation of those who believe in him. Isn't that amazing? The one same event, a great display of human evil, but yet the greatest achievement of mankind, of the one man, in fact, in fact the seed the offspring of Eve, and that is Jesus. You see, at the cross, what was placed on the, crown, on the head of Jesus? It was a crown of thorns. What was the curse for Adam? What happened to the ground? Thorns and thistles grew. So you see, in a sense, the crown being placed on Jesus, he was bearing on himself the curse for sin, the curse of God. He bore the penalty of this curse so that sin could be dealt with so that the greatest achievement so that salvation can be ours 
so that our relationship can be restored with God the way it was meant to be in the Garden of Eden. So that's what our passage speaks of. It's only a slight hint of that hope, but it's a hope that's become clear for us now, clear for us who have the Old and New Testament. And so this is something for us Christians to rejoice about, isn't it? Because now we know who that offspring is. We don't need to be searching the Bibles anymore. We know that this offspring, the serpent crusher, the one who defeats sin and death, is Jesus Christ. Great thing for us Christians to be rejoicing about. But if you're a non-Christian here, if you do not believe in Jesus, well, let me urge you. Let me encourage you to consider this Jesus, to consider this offspring of Eve, to consider this serpent crusher, the one who achieves the greatest thing in all humanity, and that is our salvation. Let's pray.